Well, what's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Justine Armour. She's spent a career all over the place, but especially in Australia and New York. She's worked at Cleminger, BBDO, Saatchi, Wyden and Kennedy, 72 and Sunny, and is now the brand new Chief Creative Officer or CCO for the cool kids out there of Grey New York. First of all, congratulations, Justine. Thank you. Very excited. Brand, oh. brand new. Yeah. And second of all, welcome to Sweathead. Thank you so much. We're going to get into a topic that I love. Uh, we're going to talk about creating thriving cultures or a thriving culture in a creative department. We are. I've been doing a lot of thinking about this and a lot of reading about this over, you know, since I became sort of a leader of a creative department. So it's become, it's, an, it's a really exciting thing to start thinking about that, going from mm. being a copywriter, you know, f- pretty much 20 years to now thinking about my creating the environment where other people can, you know, be their best creative selves. It's been mm-hmm. a really fun thing to delve into. Were you very aware of the environments in which you worked coming up or was it largely, I've got words to write? Um, I think it was a lot largely I've got words to write and not really having a lot of, not really having a lot of say or control in like in the world that I was, in which I was writing them. And so it, I never really thought about it that much. And then all of a sudden you need to activate a team and you, you need to make a space in a world where, you know, great talent can be their best. Now it's your responsibility to set the scene for them and, and get, you know, move uh, obstacles out of the way for them. And so, yeah, I don't think I really was thinking to think about it that much. I definitely was like a, a whiny, whingy young creative. Like I was definitely always like aware of the things that were against me, but I didn't really have a lot of control over, like, over moving them. If you, if you think back to your 20s, how would you describe some of the creative departments that you were in? Um, I think, I mean, we worked really hard. I think it was more of an accepted thing that, you know, if you were a creative, you, it was your life. Usually I was, by the way, the only girl or one of two girls in the creative department, mm-hmm. probably for the first 10 years. And so it's a very masculine environment. There's a lot of, uh, and in Australia, you know, pretty irreverent. <laughs> That's like a nice way of putting it, irreverent jokes. And you kind of really have to hang with like some stuff that you maybe definitely wouldn't put up with now. Mm. Um, so I always felt like I didn't really belong in, in the creative department and I had to sort of do a lot and make a lot of concessions to like make myself feel like I fit in or fit myself in. So I think that now like we're so much more thoughtful about creating an environment where diverse talent feels very like a sense of belonging. Coming up in Australia, it was like I remember coming for my first couple of days at Widener Kennedy and feeling like we felt weirdly respectful. <laughs> yeah. Which office was that in? <laughs> that was in Portland in Oregon. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's funny. Uh, the vibe I grew up, I've been in agencies since, on and off, largely on since I was 19. And the vibe I grew up around was kind of, it was very alpha male, the creative department. I was usually with the digital kids or the strategy kids. And yeah, every now and then we would be the ones who would go to the pub on a Friday afternoon at, you know, 4 p.m. But uh, the rest of the agency was certainly there at many agencies I was at from midday. Uh, But we were kind of the quieter kids. Mm. There was a certain kind of alpha, like dinosaurs walking the plane, trying to get their food vibe in a lot of the agencies that I was around, even though my memory of them is actually also quite, I'm quite fond of them. some of those yeah. memories too. You know, when you talk about masculine and irreverence and how that differs to Wyden and Kennedy, I mean, what, 
tell me a little bit more about that masculine irreverent vibe you grew up in or around it wasn't a place where you as a a female creative like the place wasn't set up for you to sort of succeed it was set up for like young guys so it's like a young guy culture Mm. but when I went to Wyden Kennedy people were just more careful about the things that they would say I remember yeah. There was something that happened at Wyden, I'll tell you, where they had a lot of dogs in the office. Uh-huh. And this is the first time it really struck me that this place was so much more thoughtful. Where under, under people's desks, they had like there's, there are these like little zip up dog enclosures, like a little like foldable kennel kind of thing that if your dog came in and you wanted to put them in that little den kind of situation for the day, they could do it. And there was a girl that like, we were just having a meeting, there was a PM that like, jokingly got inside this dog enclosure and looked out and the creative directors were so uncomfortable about it that they were just like no 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 this is not cool this is not cool it just felt they just like the gender dynamic of it the whole scene of it it wasn't it was a totally joking moment but they were so conscious of of you know there are two, two male creative directors and this girls in this kennel and they were just like no like they, they laughed about it but they also were just the uncomfortableness of it was just such a, it was so present. And I just, it, was, it went very early on that made me realise, oh, this is like, if this happened in Australia, everyone would just laugh it off and it would be just a, a thing that happened on a Tuesday. Yeah, I, I think there are certain stereotypes that have been utterly true through the history of advertising in Australia. And I will speak for things that I've heard and seen rather than get you to do it because I get, I get that it's an uncomfortable topic, but Aussies can be direct. Yes. Sometimes they use rude words. Sometimes they use rude words in every sentence. There, have been, uh, there was probably quite a bit of sexism and jokes about genders out loud using rude words in a very unnecessarily direct way. Uh, hey, look, there were, there were departments that were largely male who might have disappeared to strip clubs and more and around illicit drugs and more and that was all understood and everybody knew what was going on. I've never been close to that and not that it's bad or not good, but, you know, you can make your own judgments. But that was that stuff was going on. So Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you yeah, didn't have I, to agree with that, Justine. You could have just like... Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm, no comment. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, um, I will say that was all happening and it was also something if you're the only girl or you're one of two girls and you already feel like you're lucky to be there you hang with that you hang with that stuff in a way that I feel now I look back and I'm like I was definitely very complicit in a way that encouraged the behavior around me and that's not healthy either coming to America has given me a space to like really reflect on you know, I created, a, I created that around me as well. I take responsibility for that as well. So now I've gotten this opportunity as I go into this like next phase of my career to like create really healthy cultures and healthy environments around me where lots of different types of people do have a sense of belonging and can have fun and can, you know, bring all of their creative impulses to the table. And you know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. um, it's given me that opportunity to like be very reflective and I think it's been great for that reason, yeah. moving do, to America. Do you feel that the power dynamics within some of the creative departments or actually within the agencies that you've worked in in America have been different as far as the power of the creative department? Yeah, I mean, I think when I got to Wine and Kennedy, um, Ruth, was, Ruth was my partner. She was my art director partner. We moved over together. <clears throat> I think we were girl 
nine and 10 or 10 and 11 out of the whole creative department. I think there were like, there's like 180 creatives at something at that point. So it was like, including all the creative directors, it's a massive creative department mm. and hardly any girls. So again, naturally you feel a sense of you're an imposter in a land of men. Mm. <laughs> the agency has lots of women and lots of diversity now. And even at that time was very conscious of the fact that they hadn't, there wasn't enough diversity. And then when I became a creative director there, at that point, I think there were 26 creative directors and I was the only female CD. Mm. So again, you're in a room with a lot of like incredibly impressive creative people and creative leaders who are now, you know, across the world leading agencies. And again, there's just like a sense of like, I don't know, am I feeling the quota of one, one, one girl or, you know, there's like, it's a, it's a pretty intense and a pretty intimidating room to be in mm. as a young CD. And at that point, when you moved into the creative director title and, and role, were you, did you have direct reports? Yeah, you have, a, when you're a CD at White and you are really kind of running a business. First, I was on Dodge and Chrysler with my partner, Micah, Walker, who was my boss previously at Mo Jones Australia. Um, so yeah, we had like a pretty healthy big team. It was a big chunk of business. And so yeah, you go from being a copywriter and being like a doer and a, you know, a craftsperson to now teaching other people or in this like leadership role. And there was no coaching around becoming a creative director. It was just like, you're a CD now. Congratulations. Good luck. You know, it was only really when I came to 72 and Sunny where it was incredibly thoughtful about supporting me as a leader. So in the last few years, I've had incredible growth as a leader. And that's when I really got a chance to like think about what I was creating around me as a cult, you know, culturally and all that. But mm-hmm. at, set, at Widen, it's they put the crown on your head and say, good luck. <laughs> so think or swim. And I don't, I definitely don't think I was, I know that I was not a good boss when I was there. Yeah. How do you know that? Because the work wasn't, as alive as it could have been, I was fearful of failing rather than creating like a fearlessness around me. I was definitely like, I had a anxiety around, around the role. And I think that just when people are looking up at you to like lead them and you're tight and clenched and anxious, it's not, I mean, you know, like you've been a boss, it's just like full of anxiety. That's just like a, such a sucky thing to be around. So mm. I think I definitely wish that I could have could do that again now with the knowledge Mm. that I have. Can you think of things you said or ways in which you behave that might help people understand how that anxiety comes to life in a meeting or in an interaction? I wrote this thing, somebody wrote this thing recently, um, I read it on Twitter, someone said something like, anger is fear pretending to be powerful, (laughs) something like that. And I was like, I would see work that I wasn't happy with and I would be like angry about it. I'd be like annoyed about it and it would, I would be quite mean about the work and I'd be mean about the briefs. And I think it was just because I was so afraid of of being the first, in my mind, the first creative director at White and Kennedy to ever fuck up. Of course, there have been many over the years, I'm sure. And all of us were... (laughs) None of us know what we're doing. That's like the best piece of advice that I've ever been given. Nobody knows what they're doing. But I had, you know, I would look at work and I would just be, if it wasn't exactly what I wanted to see, it, I didn't know, I didn't have the skills yet to get it where I need, needed to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just don't think it was a, yeah, I was, 
I was a fearful, fearful leader. Okay. Interesting, interesting. I feel like I've trapped you in a bit of a swamp here. Oh my God, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. Gonna get you out of, I'm going to get you out of the swamp in a second, <laughs> but not yet. Uh, it's funny hearing the the thought that anger is fear pretending to be powerful because there's a there's a similar sentence, which is uh, depression is anger turned within. So I wonder if depression is fear pretending to be powerful. I don't know. Mm. Other people can deal with that one. Um, so, you know, when you were, so you were managing through fear and anger. I mean, did you throw pup tantrums? No, I don't think, no, they were, no, 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 no. I was, that's definitely not my mode. Um, I threw, uh, Knives. I'm joking. I'm yeah, joking. kind of verbal knives. You know, like I think there's a bit of that. You know, like then I, I definitely wasn't like a rageful person, but I definitely like had a resentment around if the work wasn't good enough. I just had a resentful mode, and I would be very direct about. It. And like that's back to you know your Aussie comment before. I would be very direct about it in a way that wasn't unlocking different paths for people, mm-hmm. I would be critical instead of sort of encouraging, which I think you need to have some years on you and you need to have some examples for yourself of how you've been able to do good work as a leader before you can become confident in getting other people there. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, I feel that there's a, a shift in, I'll call it maturity. It's not meant in a judgmental way from I'm leading other people. We have to do good work and that work's going to come through me or else versus I wonder how I can help these people have a good career. I wonder what they need from me today. This work isn't where it needs to be. What's going on? We need to fix it. There's a a little evolution in maturity, I think. Do you relate to that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what happens is once you've got a few, you've, I don't know, whatever, everybody must have their sort of own internal quota that you, that they need to re- like, I, for me, I was like, I need to, as a CD and then as a group CD and then as an ECD, I need to know that I can do great work from this angle, from this vantage point. And once I've got those pieces, then I can relax and then I can show other people, you know, there's like a bit of a sense of it doesn't matter as much if 100% of the work that I do isn't perfect. You know, there's, it's okay to experiment a little bit more. It's okay to have a little, a little bit more distance from projects. It's okay to like, actually, sometimes, you know, what people really need for me is to just shut up and go away. You know, like get, I might be the obstacle. So I think it's more, you just have a sense of, yeah, maturity and confidence and, almost just trust in yourself to you can you can unlock all these sort of creative people around you to go and you know and also like you also realize you can't scale micromanagement you know like you can't you have to uh, uh, the further you sort of get along in the sort of creative director evolution you need to be able to scale your influence so you need to have and now this job that I'm about to go and do there's a, a, a much bigger team so I can't sit with people and agonize over a line for two days. Mm. You know, I have to be able to unlock people's ability to go and do that for themselves. Yeah, yeah. And that's not just a, an evolution in maturity. I, I, it's also an evolution in identity. You know, you go from, let's call it a decade or more, a decade of being on the tools, quote unquote, doing the work, knowing that if you do good work, you get your name as a credit on the award that goes in your portfolio. You progress, you progress, you progress. And then you become a manager or a leader and you're like, oh, who am I? 
because yeah. I knew who I was for a long time. Now I'm not exactly sure. And I think whether you're moving into a bigger role, managing people, or even going out as a freelancer or an independent or setting up your own company, I, I think there's like a three to five year journey in you re-exploring your identity for two reasons. One is just to get clear in your head what it is. It's all very well on day one of a new job or a new role to, to say, this is, this is what I'm about. But if you don't have experience in that, you're making it up. So you, you're kind of you know, living your dream early and then you've got to make that dream happen. And then the second thing is it takes time for other people to see you that way. And identities are largely social constructs. You know, we can be clear within ourselves, but then that clarity has to appear in the world and kind of have some kind of coherence. So just becoming a manager overnight, this is like a multi-multi-year journey, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think your point about the social construct thing is incredibly, it's, it's accurate because, and I will say, I've had to move agencies every time I wanted to reinvent myself. Mm. And I've stayed, you know, I stay, I'm a stayer, like I move in. But then I, once, you know, I've hit a point, you know, I've certainly hit a point at Widen where I realised there wasn't going to be more responsibility for me there. And then again at 72 where it's like, you know, I've got a lovely agency, it's doing really well, but like do I want to unlock another level here? And I think sometimes you do need to step outside of the place that you're in and like actually force reappraisal Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, and get a different sort of audience around you. And I think, you know, and back to the earlier point that you made, I think that that change from creative doer, being on the tools, being in, in the craft to leadership is such a, it's a massive change. I think of all the, and look, I've only experienced as a, as a creative, but I imagine of all of the sort of shifts that are made in the industry, going from, you know, copywriter to, to now leading other people is, or creative to leading other people is like, it's such a, it's almost a hundred percent different job. Yeah, it is. You know, and if you haven't had leaders that you've looked up to or haven't, you haven't been paying attention to your leaders over the years, like it's a pretty big shift. <laughs> yeah, it's, but it's like, uh, if you wanted to be farcical with it, you know, imagine going to an office and going, has anybody here written a screenplay or a novel because you're now the boss? Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, what? <laughs> okay. Why are those two things? They don't correlate. Yeah. <laughs> has, any, has anybody done a great painting recently? Oh, you're now the boss too. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so the skills that you, that you needed to be great at the thing that got you there um, are completely irrelevant to the, to the new thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you, you talked about unlocking levels and seeking out more responsibility. Why bother? Because... I'm greedy for the work. I want to do, I, you know, like the experience of making a wonderful piece of work and then seeing it out in the world. And, you know, I'm just so hooked on that, on that feedback and on that, you know, the experience of like just doing something fucking cool and everyone loves it and you get that. I, I'm greedy for more of that at scale. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now I'm going to this, um, in, to Grey where they have, incredible brands, global brands, massive opportunity. And I'm just so pumped about the idea of like having that experience across the agency on lots of different things all simultaneously. Mm. That's all it comes down to. I mean, I'll look at that and go, there's so many cool brands, so much opportunity Mm -hmm. and great people. You know, I did this, they don't know this yet. 
but I have spent the last month research. I went, I looked at every book of every person in the creative department. I read every bio. I've gone and like fallen in love with the team before they even met me. So just like the idea, like getting to work in a big creative department and, and getting to like lead a great big bunch of people that are really fantastic is just very exciting to me. You mentioned the work, which is obviously a phrase we use to talk about the creative work, oh, the, yes, output, I'm sorry. the stuff we see in the public. How do you see the work of it? Why do you apologize? But how do you see? Oh, because you- I apologize because I, I say that because I know that the work that we make is not the only work. And, I, and I've actually, in recent years, even when we do a presentation to clients, it used to be like, it's the, you know, the setup and all that, and then there'd be the work. And I, I've actually forced, even the way that we write the decks now, I make sure we don't put that because there's a lot of work that's not just, you know, the creative product. So. Oh, t- totally. And that's, that was how I was going to set up the question, which mm-hmm. is how, how do you see the work of a chief creative officer? Wow. I mean, the work of a chief creative officer is going to be to like inspire and sharpen and, you know, create connectivity between disciplines I think as well I think some agencies are better at others and really truly collaborating between disciplines and I think you need to see your leaders comfortable in like allowing outside perspectives that aren't just from the creative department mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so setting an example like that being a role model for that kind of thing mm-hmm. and also just like to be honest I love the business I love this job I feel incredibly privileged to get to do what I do. And I think sometimes the business gets, there's been a, a lot of, you know, complaints about how it's changed. It's not as fun. We're doing less with more, uh, more with less. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff about it that gets, it's going to be getting a bit of a bad rap. But also, I, so I think my work is also to remind everybody and to be excited about the fact that this is an amazing, amazing job compared to almost anything else that you could do it's like it's fun you get to work around incredible people and I think it's just like you need people to love it around you and to like for that love to be infectious Mm -hmm. so I think that's going to be a big part of this is cheerleader and champion so you you use the word inspire that part of the work of a CCO is to inspire a creative department and the thing is, I, I really go through the faces that I've worked with in my life and I'm like, I don't know how many people that I've worked with in a creative department really wanted to be inspired. I, I think they wanted to often feel supported and to think that the budget was going to be clear on a particular brief, that the work was going to happen, that it was going to be good, that everyone around them was working to get it out into the public in a good way. A word like inspire, it, it feels like a a cultural mismatch, you know, Mm -hmm. as you've moved into these management roles, do you really think the role of a CCO is to inspire a creative department? Absolutely. And I think a part of of that inspiration is actually understanding the concept of resilience because, of course, there's a lot of factors against you in the way it's hard. It's hard, you know, there's a lot of factors against you and against the work. But I can say from experience I can't think of a piece of work that I've made that's been celebrated and it's been good that hasn't had to go through multiple, multiple rounds, almost being killed, being killed and me having to resurrect it or, you know, there's, there's a lot of his, there's a lot of experience and history that I bring to the table to, to prove to people that actually like it's a very hopeful 
gig, you know, just because a brief doesn't start out as exciting doesn't mean you can't go and make incredible work. Just because um, something dies five times doesn't mean you can't bring it back and, you know, resurrect it a sixth time and, you know, win tons of awards for it. You know, there's been... I think I made this campaign at Widen years ago for uh, Old Spice with the mom song and I think it went through like maybe three or four rounds of testing where we had different uh, different concepts that we had, you know, lots and lots of campaigns and scripts and things that we'd written and they all died in testing. And this was one of those kind of like, oh, God, we've got to go back up the mountain again. And we come up with this thing and then it gets through testing. It goes, you know, they test in a bunch of different markets. And then we go and make this thing. And so that to me is like, that's an inspiring story because the concept of resilience just doesn't seem to be one that people really value in the agency, in agencies right now. Like you mm. do have to keep going and you have to believe that every time you get a knockback is an opportunity to take new information and sharpen yourself and sharpen the work and go back with something better. Yeah. So that, I don't know, I think that's inspiring. And I definitely think that's the role because like you, because it's easy to get kind of despondent about it. You know, it's easy to get like, you get knocked down. It's really hard to keep coming back. You always think that you see this beautiful work out in the world and you imagine in your head that somehow someone wrote this down and then a month later they're on set with, you know, the world famous director and celebrities or whatever. It, that's not how it ha- That's not how it goes. Yeah. You know? That's why I think I pick at words like, uh, or inspire, inspiration, empowerment, optimism, happiness, because I think doing creative work is necessarily difficult, not just because you're trying to introduce something new into the world and most of the world doesn't want to change. So it doesn't want your new thing, let alone having to work with each other and see whose ideas get through. It's naturally going to be contentious. And I think the, resilience point is really, really important. And I think it's an even better point when we acknowledge that, yeah, maybe every day is, it's not necessarily like the Buddhist point of view on suffering. Every day doesn't have to be suffering, but every day is going to be difficult. And isn't it amazing when something is less difficult than the other thing and it gets made? How incredible is that? Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas I think a lot of the, the stuff that you see, or I, I think there's an assumption with a lot of people that it's just going to be easy, you got to get there quickly. I mean, I, I definitely felt that <laughs> growing up in Australia, moving to New York taught me about different ways of working, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, so my, my point really is I think some of these kind of, the, the more flowery language can distract from the point that a lot of creative brands are a bit demonic. They're going through stuff. They could be frustrated. A lot of people doing creative work, not everyone, a lot of people doing creative work grew up with some trauma, mm-hmm. not everyone. And I feel like those conversations are as important and they need to happen next to the, uh, the more flowery corporate conversations. I think. Mm-hmm. That's all. I agree. Tell me a little bit more about how you're going to, uh, your intentions with the creative department. You know, how does one set up a thriving creative department if one can actually set one up? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think you have to love the people, which is kind of, this is going to sound flowery. I know I've just come out of the back of, off, the, off the back of your, uh, no, <laughs> your no. conversation, but it is definitely, you know, I will say when I came to 72, I had, one of the regrets I have is I came in and I was like, I didn't trust people out from the, you know, from the get go. I didn't look around the crepe department and go, I believe these are the people that are going to get this agency to be like, put this agency on a map creatively. And, you know, I came in with a bit of like, you know, just like lower expectations. And I think what I learned when I was there was 
that you absolutely have to believe that the team that you have can execute your vision. And because that belief, they feel that, you know, they feel that sense of expectation. They feel that sense of, you know, that trust from you. So it's definitely a, it's the soft skills part. I think that is a big part of, of what makes a great creative department. So going into this job, this is why I, I really did all my research on the people because I wanted to, in my core, know, and I see it, that everybody in that team has done great work, knows what a good idea is, has a level of craft. And so I'm walking into the, the agency already full of just, absolute belief that this agency is going to return to when it was like one of the best creative agencies in the world. Mm. So that's part of it. And I think also just modeling the fearlessness is a really important piece. Like all of the sort of creative leaders need to feel a sense of confidence. So there's that part, like I'm going to be doing a lot of work to make sure that my creative leader teams feel supported. And then, you know, I think you just need examples of the agency kicking ass. And so I'm going to have a real sense of urgency to get some great work out the door very early. So I will work as hard as I need to to make that happen. Because mm. that, that confidence, you know, you see the work, it goes out and, you, you know, the agency gets confidence is in the air. So much of it is intangible vibe. Yeah. Yeah, and, and getting sense? that yeah, totally, and getting that sense of momentum. I mean, I, I was I saw it yesterday on, on the soccer field. Uh, I use so many soccer references, <laughs> uh, but yeah, every now and then a team will get a sniff of goal, and all of a sudden everyone's running a little harder and pushing a little harder, and then they get the goal, and they're like, "Oh, we could do it again," and the energy completely changes within a few minutes. It's you know you see that in the workplace a little bit. Um, yeah. To the point of, around love, there's a phrase that I quite enjoy, which is that you need to believe in your people more than they believe in themselves. Mm-hmm. It, you know, there has to be a caveat with that because jobs aren't for life. Um, but I like that as a starting point, believe in your people more than you believe in themselves, mm-hmm. more than they believe in your people more than they believe in themselves. Uh, as far as vision goes, what is, your, what is your vision? Do you arrive in a new role like this with a vision? Does it take time? Does your vision just latch onto the vision that's already set by the agency? Yeah, I mean, look, my personal idea, my personal definition of a great company is of a thriving creative department is everybody's getting headhunted but nobody wants to leave (laughs) you know everybody is making work that they are proud of that is being noticed that they are learning from so everybody's got something that they're passionate about and then the environment that we're doing it in is magnetic and keeps people there. It's one of those things, like I want people to be noticed by other agencies. I want my people to be in demand and I want them to want to stay because they love the experience of working there. Mm. So, of course, that's a very internal vision. The work needs to be obviously incredible for clients. It needs to be effective in the world. It needs to be being noticed amongst, now I guess in America, people are being exposed to 10,000 brand messages, ads a day, it needs to stand out from from that fray. But to me, as a creative department leader, that is how I think Mm -hmm. of a successful creative department. How do you coach fearlessness? I mean, you just need examples. I need to help everybody. Everybody needs to be making good work and prove to themselves that they can do that work and repeat. 
And also it's like there's a lot of one-on-one understanding people and talking them through their things. I think there's also like being as a, as a leader, acknowledging the things that I've been through and that I have where I've kind of failed and learned the things that I've learned from and I'm actually okay. So that's part of it as well. Like I'm quite maybe a bit of an oversharer mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of my personal journey, but I also think that's something that I, I, I want people to learn from the things that I've experienced and, and to feel like it's all going to work out fine. Also, it's only advertising. And I know we've heard this before. Like, no one's going to die. We take it very seriously. And I think maybe sometimes a little bit too seriously. Mm. I, I mean, you kind of need to take it seriously enough, right? You know, it's, it's, it's the work of ego, creativity, even if you're working on someone else's product or brand. Um, yeah, I think, you know, being really clear and then repeating your message around, here's what we're trying to do. And then almost as importantly, here's how you fit in. Because anytime there's a shift like this, anytime someone new comes in, people are worried, they're thinking, what about me? What about me? Anytime you do a change initiative in a company, whatever meeting you're in, whatever information you think you're being generous enough to share, whatever strategy you think you're sharing, that's amazing. People are like, yeah, but how does that affect me? What about me? What about me? So you've got to mm-hmm. kind of continually say, here's where we're going, here's how you fit in. And then pointing out uh, certain behaviors, which in, I guess I learned this through parenting, like teachable moments as in mm-hmm. that was really good because that fits with where we're going. And then I used to start meetings with questions such as uh, what's the risk you've taken in the past week and how did it go? That kind of question might not be suitable for a creative department, but I think pointing out behaviors, those teachable moments, and then having questions that you can continually ask people to remind them of the values of where you're going. It's a, it's a neat and tidy, probably half-page operating system that you can apply to to managing people. Absolutely. I think that your point, like the feedback in the moment is a really good way of just building that trust between you because your criticism of my performance in that meeting or whatever, is not going to be something you talk about later with someone else. Like if you're going to, if I'm going to, it's constantly um, be talking about how we're doing, whether it's praise or like encouragement or here's a thing you could have done slightly differently just now. You know, I think that's a really um, important piece. Yeah. And and also that could, that doesn't even need to be a statement. You know, this. I'm really talking through us to other people, but that doesn't even have to be a statement. It could be, what do you think we could do differently next time? Yes. So that there's reflection and through that reflection that, I mean, that's how the, I believe that changes the brain, a little bit of reflection on something that just happened. And then you can use the language between you rather than it being, rather than the language coming down through authority and power. There's more of a a language that kind of bubbles up that you can use to hopefully get people going in the direction that you want them to go. Yeah. Do you have any other little techniques like that? No, but I think being invested in the person's growth and having them set like where they want to go and you being a person who, as a leader, like helps them achieve that goal, you know, I think there's like a, a little bit of a different, I don't know if this is emerging or if I'm just discovering it, but a way of supporting your team is like have them set what their ambitions are and what they, what they want to achieve and hopefully they line up with, you know, what the agency also wants to do. Mm-hmm. For, for me to organize myself around like helping them achieve that goal. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Rather than like, here's what the agency needs to achieve and this is how you need to behave to get there. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, exactly. Like there's a few questions I used to like to ask people in this little personal plan, like one page personal plan. Uh, there were things like, what are three things you want to get good at this year? Write in a sentence, the story about your year 
that you hope to tell in a year's time? Uh, what kind of projects you want to get access to? There were a few questions like that. And I found those kinds of questions useful because it allowed me to be clear on what to advocate for and it helped me know what kinds of conversations would be useful when talking to the person I was managing as opposed to the top-down stuff where you're like, hang on, you've not even listened to me and what I want. Because again, mm -hmm. what about me is in pretty much every single interaction here. Absolutely. And I think orienting yourself as like a servant leader, I think is kind of maybe for me, it's like the only way to do it now. Yeah. Like I, I don't have the kind of, I don't, I just don't, I tried the thing where I was like, this is how I need it to happen and you need to do it my way. It just doesn't work for me. And it's, it's so much more enjoyable as, um, to like get around people and just support them and like mm -hmm. amplify the things that they want. And I've just, that's, I've just found that just like a much more enjoyable experience for me at work. Yeah. You know. I, th I think the one risk with that approach, which I heavily identify with, is if you're in a management team that is suspicious of that approach because they like power and they like to be the bosses and they're used to bossing people around. If you go into a situation like that and you talk the way you just talked, people can be like, what? Like, no, you're supposed to be dominant. That's how we behave. That's like the, I've run into that in a couple of places and it's, uh, it's weird because you continually have to defend how you like to manage people. And at some point you're like, well, why did you even hire me? I was pretty clear on this. <laughs> yeah. But also like as a female leader, there aren't that many enough women in this role. And I just don't think anyone wants me be like that and I guess I just yeah. it doesn't work like no, this they just there's no respect for it so I'm sure there are like big bombastic characters that can get away with that type of approach I just I just haven't been able to get away with it mm. uh are you going to work on brief yourself in this new role uh, I don't I look I'm very interested in I love new business I love pitching so I'm very excited about about that part of it. I think that's, that's where, um, what I've, what, one of the things I've learned is that the smaller, the, a pitch team should be as small as it absolutely can possibly be. And in those experiences, those moments is where I get to probably do a stretch out a little bit more as a creative, but you know, I, I think my role is going to be more helping, you know, the people, the, the creative leaders are already there mm. to get, the best work that they can get on their clients that they have. Okay. So I don't see myself as pulling the quill out at any point mm -hmm. very often. Mm. You, you know, people have pens these days. <laughs> I'm joking. Okay. I'll give you a last question and it's going to be vicariously selfish because mm. I want to talk to you about strategists. Mm, please. How? <laughs> That's what we were going to be talking about. Uh, no. <clears throat> it's all right. Uh, what, What's your point of view on account planning, account planners, strategists, strategy in an agency? You know, how do you see them work most effectively with the kind of creative department that you're hoping to be a part of? My favorite, favorite people in the agency land are strategists and planners. I have over the years have, it's the most essential partnership between creative and strategy and they've actually become my most enduring friendships as I've moved from agency to agency and I probably follow more planners and strategists in my social media than I do like creatives to be honest. Mm. so 
I think it's absolutely essential. I've seen lots of different ways of have strategies showing up. When I was at Widen, the agency, the, the strategy department's led by um, David Terry, who I don't know if you've met him, but he was he was like a roadie for Metallica. He's a brilliant, brilliant character, just so instinctive and just like gut level, brilliant thinking. And that was very exciting to be around. Like you just have these conversations and they're just so full of like juicy. We already picked on the word inspiring, but <laughs> it's definitely, it's full of just great content that you can run away and make work about. And I think he really was like this is well, I, I say was because I was, I, I don't work there anymore, but he is just like a battery source for that whole strategy department. And like the way that that team would show up was like almost like a creative strategy department, like lots of rigor around the thinking, but definitely it's very electric, like the way that they would show up with thinking. So I love that. I love that sort of like just almost uncontained passion. <laughs> and then I, you know, I work also when I came to 72, the strategy department there has been led by former BBH planner, Tim Jones, very, very buttoned up, like super rigorous, brilliant, pithy insights. And so that I've also enjoyed that. So I don't actually think that there's a lot of different ways that you can do it. And I, what I don't love is like kind of lazy, <laughs> lazy thinking and that, you know, I want to, I want that relationship between me and my sort of strategy partner on any brief on any on any project to be like almost like a creative, it's a creative relationship. I think of that person as like, they're almost like your creative partner, the brains lobbying in the material that you're going to go and write the creative work to. But I think, I think that relationship should feel very alive. And then, you know, you move on to like, you sell the work through and then you move into production and you have that sort of similar relationship with your production partners. But I just, I love, I love it when it's so compelling on a human level, the thing that we're working with that, that the planners get just personally excited about it. I just think that personal enthusiasm is like you can't underestimate that power that it has mm. to like keep, keep a project moving. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Makes sense. I- yeah, yeah. Look, I, look, on behalf of all strategists out there, I wish there were more people like you. I'm sure there are many people who would share a philosophy like that, but we want more. So that's awesome. Uh, Justine, where's the best place for people to find you on the internet? I guess on Twitter, just, just Arma. And then I'm on my, I guess I post a lot of um, photos of my dog on Instagram. <laughs> J-U-S with a bunch of underscores. Uh, but that's, uh, I don't really, yeah, just see me out there. I do a lot of retweeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, professional retweeter. Retweeter. But also, yeah, look, I, I appreciate you having this chat. It's, it's rare to get to have a conversation with, with someone as they're entering a very, very large role in a very famous institution such as Gray New York. And I know you've probably got a lot of thoughts going on everything's new, you, you know, there's probably, you, you might be second guessing yourself, what can I say? What can't I say? So I just appreciate that you're even happy to have the conversation. Absolutely. I'm really, thank you for having me on. I love the work that you're doing and I have been stealing your thinking over the years. So um, I really appreciate that you put so much content out there. <laughs> thank you for joining me on Sweathead today, Justin, and best wishes in this amazing new role. I look forward to seeing the work that you do and I guarantee you'll have a few strategists slash planners, a few more looking at Grey New York, especially 
with the ability to work with a chief creative officer who likes planners. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm very much looking forward to meeting all of those planners that are interested in coming to work with me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Best wishes. Peace.